You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 77, The Symposium. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway, this episode will be a bit different. As I mentioned last time, I was recently a part of a symposium on Napoleonic history hosted by the Messina Society. It was a really interesting experience. If you want to check it out, you can open the description of this episode to find a link to their YouTube channel, where they've posted recordings of the symposium. With the permission of my fellow participants, this episode will be a recording of the panel on Napoleonic podcasting. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everyone, to day two of the uh, Symposium on Napoleonic <coughs> Era. Um, I'm Alex Mikabiridze, um, uh, hosting this symposium from Louisiana State University in Shreveport's campus, uh, and I appreciate you all of you uh, joining us. Today, we have a wonderful a roundtable discussion on the world of Napoleonic podcasting. And without further ado, I want to <coughs> transfer the rein, so to speak, although this might be a dangerous proposition, to my dear friend, uh, David Markham. Well, thank you, Alex. You, uh, you are taking a grave risk when you transfer power to me. I think there's many people who would agree with that. Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm, I'm happy to see you here. I'm sure we'll have some more people joining us shortly. I want to start off by thanking Alex and Victor, Skip, Ruth, Peter, and anyone else who was involved in making this weekend happen. A few weeks ago, I attended my 25th CRE. And while this isn't quite the same as actually being there, it is great that we can all get together one way or the other. Let's all hope for better next year. I would also like to announce that the INS will have a virtual Congress this summer, mostly focusing on Napoleon on St. Helena and his legacy. I invite you all to take part. As I look at my screen at the names and faces of those who are here, there's one very special person who is missing. Susan Connor was a dear friend of mine and of many of you as well. She was one of my biggest promoters and we had two academic projects we were working on when she sadly died of cancer. She was a top scholar who loved to present papers on unusual topics, the sewers of Paris, the prostitutes of Paris, the medical implements used in the birth of the King of Rome. That last one had most of the men running for the exits. Susan leaves a big hole in our group and our lives. So please join me for a moment of silence and memory of a wonderful woman. Thank you. And I will now introduce our panel. I was told to introduce myself, so I will do that in the third person. And I assure you, all of the introductions have been found to be completely true by an international team of crack fact checkers. <clears throat> J. David Markham is president of the International Napoleonic Society and president emeritus of the Napoleonic Historical Society. He is the author of numerous books and articles, has appeared on several TV shows, 
and has a Napoleonic collection that has been featured in several museum exhibitions. France made him a Knight of the Order of the French Academic Palms, France's highest civilian only award, and he is co-host with Australian Cameron Riley of the Napoleon 101 podcast. Further, David has been acclaimed as the sexiest Napoleonic podcaster of all time. Alexander Stevenson produces and presents the Napoleonic Quarterly, which breaks down the 1792 to 1815 period into three-month chunks. He read history at the University of Cambridge, but gave up the French Revolution as a bad job after two weeks of head-scratching bafflement, and only subsequently came to the period. His professional life was based in the Palace of Westminster, first as a journalist reporting on the UK Parliament and since 2015, as press secretary to the leader of the House of Commons. Now, someone who has worked in the Wisconsin State Senate and been active in politics, that is heavy, heavy duty. That's, that's impressive when you're the, the press secretary to the leader of the House of Commons. Zach White is a PhD researcher at the University of Southampton, specializing in crime and punishment within the British Army during the Napoleonic Wars. He is presenter of the podcast, The Napoleonist, and has written on command, control, morale, and civilian attitudes during the Peninsular War. He is the editor of the forthcoming collection, Sword and the Spirit, and was founder and inaugural editor-in-chief of the research journal, Romance, Revolution, and Reform. David, let me jump quickly. Um, Zach, if you're hiding under... One of these uh, monikers in the participant list, you got to tell me because we can't see you. <laughs> um, go ahead. Yeah, it would be nice to have Zach here. Uh, Everett Rummage is a former journalist and editor, which is near and dear to my heart because my dad was a, a professor of journalism. He has been writing, producing, and hosting The Age of Napoleon since 2017. Now, that's a relatively short bio. I suspect that Everett is being rather modest, but we may hear more uh, as we go along. Now, uh, the format that we have agreed, and, and I, I ran this by my, my uh, uh, participants, uh, and, and everybody seems to be in agreement. Uh, we have eight basic questions that each of us will address. Uh, and I will start off with answering the first one first, and, and, and then we'll go to, to, to Alex, and then Everett, and then Zach. Uh, and then the second one, Alex will be the first to, to answer, and then Everett, and, and Zach, and then myself, and, and so on down the line. Uh, we have an hour and 45 minutes, and in spite of one of the members of this panel being notoriously long-winded, we should be able to get through uh, most of these things fairly easily. Uh, so with that done, have we found Zach? No, we have not yet, but hopefully he will join us. Well, I think we, we need to go and that'll give Alex and Everett all the more opportunity to, to speak if, if necessary. So here are the, 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 the first question. Oh, and by the way, at the end of each round, Anyone who wants to jump in on the panel and ask each other questions can do so, but we'll hold questions from the general audience until, until, the, until the end. We should have time for, for questions at the end. So the first question is a simple and obvious one. 
how and when did you get into podcasting and why did you choose to focus on Napoleon? So I'll, I'll answer the first one, which for me is easy. In January of 2006, I received an email from Australian Cameron Riley asking if I would be interested in participating in a Napoleonic podcast that he was planning. I've been recommended and the choice was me or David Chandler. David had died, so it was to be me. I was honored to be considered at the level with my friend, David Chandler. Eventually we talked and became very good friends. We've gotten together in person a few times. We also did a number of episodes of the biography podcast and did a video podcast in Las Vegas with his other podcast partner, Ray Harris, where we compared the leadership qualities of Napoleon, Caesar, and Alexander. Cameron and Ray have done numerous other podcasts, including Caesar, Alexander the Great. I've been the guest of one or two other podcasts and would happily join any of my colleagues here, should they be so inclined. So I got involved because I was invited and I chose Napoleon because that was what I was invited to do. And so with that, we'll go to uh, Alex. Uh, thank you, David. And hello, everyone. Um, this is, um, I've been really looking forward to this and, um, it's, uh, and thank you for, for asking me. Um, well, I, I first started podcasting with, with the day job um, back in maybe 2012 or so when I was working as a journalist in, in um, Parliament in, in Westminster. And, um, you know, it, podcasting then was in that strange period where, where it, it was established as a thing that I don't think had quite taken off just yet. We hadn't had serial and things like that to really, to really get it going. But it was good fun and, and a good thing to do, uh, you know, for, for the job to talk about the politics of, of Westminster at the time. Um, and it was around that time that I came up with the idea for the Napoleonic Quarterly, which is to break the period down into three month chunks so that each episode looks at, at, uh, at a quarter of the year. Um, and I actually got as far as getting David Andress in to Westminster to, to do a, a recording, which um, uh, which still is around um, for uh, 1801, 82, 1802 ish, I think. But we'll, uh, so, so I'll be saving that up. Um, but then, unfortunately, I made the mistake of um, starting a family, which was obviously you know game over. That was that for some years, and. <laughs> Um, did did we lose Alex? He froze and now his picture is gone. Oh, yes. I uh, suppose it was partly a lockdown thing, although it had broken down quite easily, as it turns out, into 12. <laughs> Sorry, had, my, had the audio uh, broken Alex, up. we had some issue uh, with your connection, so can you re oh, yeah. reiterate that? Last about a couple, you know, 20 seconds of your time. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, uh, it's uh, essentially, um, you know, having done the podcast um, for the day job and having come up with this idea, um, but then struggled uh, to get it off the ground for so long because of uh, a little boy running around. Um, I've worked out that there is a way of ma making this a goer, um, which is by breaking it down into 12 chunks, uh, 12 seasons. Um, and, uh, and, and I'd say that, you know, I've just finished the first series. So, you know, I would say I'm still getting into podcasting in that respect. 
that's good. I'm sure it's not the same, but but I can relate somewhat to the issue of the little boy running around. We have two rather active cats that that have a tendency to want to inter, interject themselves between me and whatever it is I'm trying to do. So <laughs> I can I can relate. Uh, thank you for that. So uh, Everett, you're up next. Thanks. Um, well, for me, I'll, I'll answer it backwards. Um, why Napoleon? Um, when I was about five, I had a chance to visit Les Invalides and, you know, see the man himself. And that was how my uh, interest in Napoleon was piqued. I guess in a certain sense, I'm still, you know, riding that same fascination that I had when I was five. Um, as far as why podcasting, um, I, uh, I was involved in journalism uh, and then uh, the, the main outlet I wrote for uh, went under and uh, it kind of occurred to me that, you know, rumors of journalism's demise are not exaggerated, unfortunately. And I was young, I didn't have much experience. And I, it occurred to me that, you know, my odds were probably not very good of, you know, being able to make a living doing that. And I was kind of at a loss because I love writing, I love storytelling, and I, I wanted an outlet for that. And um, I discovered history podcasts, and I'd always had this, you know, lifelong interest in Napoleon. And I thought someone should do that. And time passed and I hadn't found one. And so I started working on my own and uh, the rest is history. So to speak. Yes. Am I muted? No. no. Okay. Uh, very good. And I am understanding now that Zach is with us. Hello. Yes. Apologies for my, uh, my tardiness. I had no the wrong worries. time down for this. So I'm keeping not amongst my, uh, my attributes, I'm afraid. Well, you're up to answer the first question then. Um, in terms of how long and, and when did I get into this? So the Napoleonicist has been running for a year, almost exactly. Uh, in fact, um, the anniversary of the first episode is, is in a fortnight. And for me, I was always very passionate about public engagement with history. I think that probably stems from having been uh, a secondary school history teacher in a former life, as it were. Um, and I... I was always struck by how tribal and polarised the popular debate is. I'm sure we've all kind of seen this. Napoleon, people seem to either love him or they hate him. Grouchy, for example, is either regarded as an imbecile or he was simply following orders. Wellington is either a commander without floor or he's a sepoy general who runs away from fights. You, you know, you get these really extreme um, positions, neither of which reflects the reality. And that lack of grey area, that grey area which surely is so interesting about the, the, the study of history itself um, was what I felt was needed. You needed the nuance, the subtleties to make people realize that, you know, reading a Wikipedia article isn't the, the sole limit of doing historical research. And I think sometimes people genuinely miss that point. And I also wanted to spark a conversation. I mean, around the, the same time, um, I was starting to plan the takeover of the Napoleon series forum from Bod Burnham. Um, forums themselves seem to be something of a, a dying breed in, in my uh, opinion and in my experience. And so I wanted to um, kind of help to provide people with a, a home that they could go to, um, to continue to discuss these things in a more knowledgeable environment than you get in the scope of a sort of 280 character Twitter um, quote. At the same time, people were talking to me about um, my own papers that I was doing and were they being live streamed. 
And I also wanted to kind of bridge that gap between the academic and the popular. So all of those things kind of coalesced quite kind of fortuitously at the same time and ended up in, in being embodied in the Napoleonicist. Why focus on Napoleon? Well, I suppose in a way you could say that actually I don't focus on Napoleon because as we're all far too aware, you know, there's, there's far more to this period than just one person. Um, and I also had to kind of inject an element of realism into what I was planning. You know, this was never going to be a rival to Age of Napoleon. Had I attempted to, to do something like that, then I would have been doomed to failure. And it needed a, a USP. Um, personally, I'm a devotee to the, the notion of history from below, um, as opposed, and that's not to disparage against the, the great man of history um, study, but I've always been interested in the little people. How do those fragile individuals cope day to day, psychologically, phys physically, socially, with the realities of what was effectively one of the world's first great uh, global um, conflicts? Partly it was selfish. Um, I wanted to also emphasise my own research, but I, I was quite resistant to the idea of um, being encouraged to go down the, the British only line. There were some folks who offered me very kind advice and said, look, why don't you just make this about Britain during the period? But you've got others out there, you know, Red Coat History podcasts. And I felt that that was too narrow. You can't understand this period purely by studying Napoleon, but equally you can't purely understand this period purely uh, by studying um, Britain either. And so I wanted that fluidity um, to widen the perspective of sharp fans, which is how a lot of folks get into this period, particularly over here in the UK. Um, whilst also kind of being unflinching in that stance. So I'm always unashamed about looking at the dark sides of the British Empire or offering a stance on Napoleon that is warts and all. So uh, as I say, quite a, a kind of complex mixture of things that came together to, to form the Napoleonicist. And just a, a brief thing in terms of why the name. Uh, interestingly, we were sort of touching on this yesterday with Michael Bruce's brilliant lecture when he was talking about he was he's was initially an Italianist um, and at the time I was having discussions with folks about what do you actually call somebody who studies the period 1789 to 1815 because if you're a Dickens scholar then you've got you're a Dickensian or you're a 19th centuryist if you focus on that particular century so the Napoleonicist sort of fell out of that. Very interesting uh any, anybody have any questions or comments for, for any of, of within the panel on, on this question? <clears throat> yeah, if I may. Please. Thank you. Um, yeah, a few points, actually. Um, in terms of um, Everett, you, you said that um, you're a, as a former journalist seeking a creative outlet and, and this interest in history, I think we have common ground there. Um, because I, So I left journalism in, in 2015 to work for the... The government of, of the United Kingdom and as a civil servant sort of instantly all of the um, uh, uh, well public voice I had you know I was told not to say anything um, stupid um, which is quite good advice actually because it means you decide not to say very much at all um, and, and it's you know it would be really inappropriate for me to have a public profile in relation to anything that's going on in, in Westminster at the moment because I work for a particular uh, individual and serve the government of the day. But the great thing about this is that more or less um, it's you know it's historical and, and removed from from contemporary politics. So it's nice to be able to sort of stretch my um, 
well, you know, for someone who loves the sound of my own voice, which I think is potentially an essential <laughs> prerequisite <laughs> for any any uh, any podcaster, um, this it's it's a really good fun thing to do. I had loads of other points to be honest, but I'll, I'll just be quick and pick up a couple of them. Um, so Zach, you mentioned Sharp as as an entry route. I think that's right. Well. Everyone, when I was sort of nine, ten years old, was reading Sharp, and in the playground we were sort of fighting each other with swords like this. Um, but my parents wouldn't let me because of the um, uh, more grown-up scenes, I suppose. So I, fa- I, I read Hornblower as an alternative, uh, and then from Hornblower to Patrick O'Brien, which remains um, uh, an absolute passion of mine. Um, and um, finally. Uh, and also in terms of the name, very quickly, um, it's hard not to put the word Napoleon in, you know, it's very algorithmable and searchable. And um, in fact, Zach's first episode of the Napoleonicist discusses the, you know, what to call the period. And and is I thoroughly recommend that episode. Um but and and so you know you do, you do find it hard to 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 not to not include it in there. Um, so yeah, that's that's partly why um, my podcast is called Napoleonic Quarterly. Yes, I, I think that's say, a I mean, recognizable name. <laughs> Anybody else? Well, I'd just say um, g- going off what Alex said. Um, you know, I. I, I struggled with that as well. I think anyone who has written or talked about Napoleon and this era has struggled with that question. But for me, you know, I think for the general audience, it's better to not run away from it. You know, I like to think of what I do as kind of inverting the sort of great man theory, because the great man theory is you look at the actions of the person to interpret historical events. And I like to, you know, I think I can flip that around and, you know, you use the personality and the personal story and the, you know, borrow some of his, uh, his glory and fame, and then use that as an entry point to talk about the broader context. Um, and I think that's a good, um, you know, for people who are not academics, for people who are not, you know, maybe even devoted enthusiasts of history of this period. I think that's a, a good to use the personality as an entry point and then talk about the, um, you know, the broad sweep of history, the, the little people, as Zach was talking about, um, because, you know, it's the marquee name. Why not use it? Yeah, I think yeah, that's a really I, good. I, and... Go ahead. Go Sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, no, you, please. I, I think that's a really good point and a really fair point um, on both counts. And it was interesting listening to what Alex was saying about he had a slightly different route, but he also approached this through novels, which I think is how people do come to the period. But as, as Everett and, and Alex were both saying, and, and indeed David, it, Napoleon, you can't escape him. No matter how much you people might dislike him and in some cases and might want to escape that fact. And this is what we come back to, I came back to in, in that opening episode about what do we call this period? Yes, there is so much more to the period than Napoleon, but Napoleon defines the period. You can't understand the period without understanding the man. Um, so it's, it is impossible to escape. And ultimately, when I was trying to come up with alternative names, none of them works better than the Napoleonic Wars. That is ultimately what you have to conclude. Um, the Napoleonic Wars is, is, does exactly what it says in the tin. And, and Everett makes a good point. Why escape it? Why not use that marketability? Well, I, I could not agree more, although I do disagree somewhat on the, 
the use of the term the Napoleonic Wars. I prefer the, 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 the period of the wars of the coalitions against Napoleon and, and, and the French Revolution, but that's, uh, that's not as catchy a, 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 a term as a, the wars of Napoleon or uh, the Napoleonic period. But yeah, I mean, it, it is, as you all have said, it would be impossible to study this period particularly in the Western world and, 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 and not primarily focus on Napoleon, or at least, you know, have one of the primary focal points being, being Napoleon, because he was such a, an, a, a oversized figure uh, in, 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 in so many ways. So let's, let's go on to the next question. Uh, does your podcast take a specific or special approach to discussing Napoleon? For example, do you take a strictly chronological approach, a topical approach, or some other approach? And we will start with Alex. Thank you. Well, I think the clue is, well, I hope the clue is in the name. Uh, but interestingly, I think it is for all three podcasts and that you've, you've got a, the, 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 the gist of, of, of them all indeed is there. And, and of course, with, with, uh, with all four podcasts, in fact. Um, well, the, the approach that, that I take, as I say, is to um, break the period down into 96 three-month periods. And this, again, is partly comes out of what we were doing in, in sort of online journalism five, ten years ago, you know, the idea of a live blog that we're all very familiar with now okay. and that you can kind of try and take um, a, a a broadly chronological approach, but try and inject some of the immediacy of the contemporary journalistic live blog into into historical events, which of course has been done before, I guess. But um, you know, I, I, I felt that um, well, I felt it would be interesting because it was something that I would be interested to to listen to and understand more. And you know, having read various books about the period, but never quite having got my head around it, particularly at university. Um, so th that's the general approach, but I think this, this kind of speaks to another point that Zach made, which is about bridging the gap between the academic and the popular. And um, if there's one thing that my undergraduate degree taught me in history, it's that chronological history is not the done thing, uh, because there's nothing new to say necessarily in, in terms of just stating what happened again. Like, why, why would anyone do that? And I hope I've I'm finding a way of trying to bridge that gap by, yeah, there's clearly some chronological stuff in there, um, but it's really about choosing a date at the end of each three-month period and assessing the situation and analysing the state of play, as it were, at, at that time on 31st March 1793 or 30th June 1813 or whatever it may be. And that actually that gives the academics who are interviewed an interesting question to sort of play around with. What were the main options facing each of the principal actors at that time? What had happened in the intervening three months that had improved the prospects of a particular country or faction or, or, or army? And um, so that's that's the general flow of how of how it works. And um I should say that um, for those who haven't heard that, that each episode has its has the same structure, which is that um, after a, a brief introductory summary of almost like a news bulletin of what's happened in, in this three months, um, 
we then go to three 10-minute interviews with different academics, experts in their field on particularly pressing issues for that period, and then uh, conclude with a, a discussion between two expert summarizers um, who for the first series have been Charles Esdale and Alexander Mikabaridze, um, who, who are able to you know, provide the overall context. And Charles and Alex are able to um, chip in as well throughout. So um, th there's a variety of voices on, on, on each episode and, and various perspectives. Okay, thank you. Uh, I've lost track, who's next? <laughs> It's me, I think. Yes. Um, well, this is a question. Um, it's hard to sum up kind of what my approach is in one pithy sentence. I, um, it, you know, what I do, it's, it's impressionistic. It's, I don't know, in some ways, it's probably more art than scholarship. Um, it's, um, I try to, something I learned when I was doing journalism is that when you're telling good nonfiction writing um, should always have a flow. Things should never come out of the blue. You should always kind of go back to the origins and introduce things and then let things flow kind of organically. So that's what I try to do. Um, you know, when I started, you know, I'm sort of more or less chronologically going through Napoleon's life, but I started in uh, the 1750s, um, you know, long before Napoleon was born. So um, because I think you need, you know, context for everything, background for everything, things shouldn't come out of the blue. Um, you know, I think one of the important things about podcasting as a medium, which sounds ridiculous to say out loud, but um, one of the important things is that there's no limits really time-wise. Uh, you've got no editor breathing down your neck about cutting down the word count. It's just, can you maintain the interest of the audience is the only real uh, limit. And um, it's, uh, you know, with that in mind, there's room to do almost limitless work, you know, doing context, introducing characters kind of slowly so that the audience gets to know who they are. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the philosophy I use. Um, but I, I go all over the place, you know, I'm in the middle right now of, uh, I've just done three episodes on uh, Toussaint Louverture. And I've, I don't think I've mentioned Napoleon once in three episodes, even though the podcast is called Age of Napoleon, and I think is kind of presented to people as a biography of Napoleon. But I wanted to do justice to the, the Haiti story. And I, I thought, you know, what better way than to, to profile the, the man at the center of that in the same way that I have, um, you know, in Europe with Napoleon. So um, I guess it's like I said, it's more it's more art and or literature than uh, it is scholarship, probably. You know, one of the things I did when I was preparing to do this project was I, I read the Iliad because I feel like, you know, it's a, also an oral story and I, I picked up some little tips and tricks from that. You know, the, <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it, even if it's thousands of years old. Um, so, yeah, that's, um, I guess, in vague terms, what I'm trying to do here. Okay, very good. Uh, after ever, we have Zach. Thanks very much. Um, it's really interesting to hear the other two kind of go first and, and outline their approaches, not least because they both do it incredibly well. Um, I've never thought about reading Homer before uh, embarking on the Napoleon Assist, but uh, what an incredible tip for people. In terms of my focus, well, 
as I, I've said already, there isn't sort of a, a defined structure in the sense that I, I jump around and I offer people lots of different perspectives and consider as far as possible, yes, the, the predictable, but also aspects of the period that might not be immediately apparent. So for example, a, a few months back, I was very fortunate to interview Claire Sibber de Grosfeld, who's an expert on Napoleonic theatre. And we discussed the way in which theatre was used as a means of resistance or acceptance of the Napoleonic regime. Equally, I've done podcasts on representations in newspapers. I'm due to speak to Professor Emma Clary, um, who's an expert on poetry during this period. So there, there are lots of different ways to approach this. And the beauty of the approach that, that I took was that I can just jump from topic to topic, almost without connection, in order to um, offer people kind of a, quite a wide flavour of different things. So we're trying to achieve the same kind of thing that Everett is, is seeking to do, and, and Alex, but just in a very different format. Um, but that said, sometimes, and, and this, again, speaks to something that Everett said, you know, if you are your own boss as a, a podcaster, there's no editor breathing down your neck to, to force you to do things in a certain way. So sometimes I'm able to do sort of slightly quirky things. One particular example is themed months. Um, so for example, there was a, a solid fortnight in the run up to the 205th anniversary of Waterloo that I termed Waterloo Remembered. And for every single day uh, in the preceding fortnight, there was a fresh episode that went out. It done nearly killed me to produce that many. Um, I won't lie, but it, it was, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I mean, the, the engagement soared afterwards. Um, Equally, I, uh, I've had a Napoleon month. I'm in the middle of what's what I'm terming Irish month. So it gives an opportunity to spend some time really drilling down into a particular theme. Um, so sometimes there is a connection uh, and we explore disparate themes within that, that overarching topic. Equally, one of the nice things that I've enjoyed doing is a kind of oral history project that I've termed Voices. So for Waterloo, there were 41 recordings that folks from around the world uh, recorded, uh, just sections of memoir testimony uh, that really resonated with them connected to the Battle of Waterloo. I'm doing the equivalent one. In fact, I've just had a whole load of submissions hit my inbox um, for Voices of Ireland, because at the moment I'm in the middle of Irish month tied in with St. Patrick's Day. Um, what I find really interesting, though, is what sells. So, for example, the narratives are without fail always the most popular topic. So if I do a battle summary, I can guarantee somewhere in the region of 500 plus listens within a fortnight. But what doesn't seem to sell quite so well, and this took me massively by surprise, is Napoleon himself. And I can't quite believe that those words came out of my mouth, but the stats speak for themselves. Napoleon's marshals, and an episode I did with a chap called Josh Proven, who runs Adventures in History Land, was far more popular than the, the summary of Napoleon's life. And I wonder if that's what I might term the sort of epic history TV effect. Uh, for the folks who don't know, he's done a, a brilliant series on Napoleon's marshals. And I wonder if that sort of tapped into the algorithms just a little bit more at the moment. Okay, forgive me. Alex, uh, I'm, I'm noticing on my screen that the speaker is not, you know, popping up to full screen uh, like it was before. So I don't know. I mean, I've, I've got I've got it now on, on, on the multi-screen thing so I can see everybody. But but uh, the people speaking were for a time being being highlighted. Uh, 
at any rate, uh, <clears throat> when uh, it's my turn to answer the question, uh, we I, I, I'm told by, by by Cameron that we were kind of groundbreaking and that we were maybe the first Napoleon podcast and something unusual having a two person uh, podcast with a host and a historian with questions and answers, which which uh, got to be interesting because sometimes he would he would pop a question that was uh, unexpected. Uh, but we decided to, to do primarily a chronological approach for the first part of, of our multi-year project. And then we had a number of topical shows uh, looking at various aspects, you know, his family relationships or, or, or whatever that went beyond strictly chronological. Uh, and then we had some... Uh, the yeah okay that was spotlight seems to be working. We we had uh, some some guests from time to time, which we'll talk about later. We we used uh, one of my books, uh, Napoleon for Dummies, uh, as a basic template because we figured that that had both chronological and topical uh, uh, aspects to it, and it was relatively simple. Uh, but if I had an idea in advance what I was going to deal with, I've got a library of a about a thousand Napoleonic books. So, you know, I would, I would try to do some research, uh, you know, and come up with some pithy quotes or, or, or whatever. Uh, but uh, basically it was uh, chronological and then, and then topical and, and uh, it, it seems to have been fairly well received. Anybody have any questions or, or comments to, to each other? Uh, may I um, very quickly, um, uh, and it's. I think that uh, Zach has has got the best approach in one respect. Uh, well, in many respects, of course, but but particularly that because you, you're picking and choosing, you, you're doing self-contained month-long projects. Basically, you can stop whenever you like. <laughs> if I don't do eighty-eight more episodes, I'm. It's going to be really bad, basically. And I think Everett as well. You know, you, you're taking a broadly chronological approach. And you're making solid progress, but you've still got a long way to go. So I suppose maybe the question for David is: no, but it's interesting that you you know you, you you got through that initially, and then you were able to almost relax once you, once you got got past that initial chronological run through. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure "relax" is quite the word I would have used, but but yes, there 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 was some some sense of relief, uh, if you will. When we 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 got to the end of the of the chronological approach, and that freed us to to decide what additional uh, aspects of his life and career, and, and what you know aspects of other people's life we could bring other people more into a people who had great influence. Uh, so it it did relieve us from okay, we must do this next because this is what happened next. Uh, and as much as I, I really liked doing that, and and I think it was important to to have uh, give people the chronological you know point of view, if you will, uh, it, it was a, a relief to be able to say, okay, now we get to decide what we want to talk about when we want to talk about it. So you make a very good point on that. Anybody else? If I could just jump in with something, please. Um, this isn't to disparage because I think both of your approaches, uh, all, all three of your approaches are, are brilliant. It's interesting that David says, and please correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but it kind of feels like you're saying that once you'd got the narrative solved in the sense that it was slightly liberating, that you could 
pick whatever you wished. Yes, that's right. So for, for Everett and, and for Alex, what are, what are your plans when you, you hit that end date, when you reach, whether it be 1815 or 1821, whatever you choose, do you think you'll you'll just stop and, and breathe a sigh of relief or do you I'm, certainly i'm sure i speak to many and that i hope that you will continue but what do you think that continuation might look like well i've been doing this for four years and right now i am in 1804 so <laughs> when this ends i mean i hope i'll still be alive um i've got a ways to go uh <coughs> It's something I actually sometimes worry about if I, you know, what if two years from now I run out of stamina and I'm nowhere near the end. Um, So right now I am just focused on crossing that finish line. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll approach the problems of what happens after that when I get there. Um, But, you know, at the current pace, that's going to be quite some time from now. So I'm not too worried about it. Uh, yeah, I think the same goes for me. Very much me too. We all want George R. R. Martin to finish the Game of Thrones series, and um, this this is relatively straightforward. I mean, it should. I hope it'll take another four and a half years, and after that, um, I can announce today that I'm going to be doing um, the Waterloo Quarterly, which takes the Battle of Waterloo 15 minutes at a time with an hour on, and this is a joke, by the way, there's no way I'm doing that, but it, it would be, it is not impossible, is it, as an idea? Anyway, um, no, I, I goodness knows what I'll do next, um, but um, it certainly feels a long way off now. Still on mute. I got I got muted somehow, so my my power is not as absolute as I was led to believe. I think. <laughs> okay, very good. Any anybody else have any any questions on or comments on on this topic? That was a good discussion, by the way, and I I, I think that uh, it it raised uh, the kind of issues that 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 you always have to deal with when you deal with anything that does not have necessarily a set ending. You know, it could go on forever. Is it okay? What do you deal with, and then how do you, in fact, bring it to a close? Uh, and uh, I think I think you handled that very well. So now we will go to the third question, which is fairly straightforward. How many episodes have you done? What is their average length? And are you still active? And you know, that last part is 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 pretty clearly already answered. But let's have a go. And it looks like Everett's up next on this one. Uh, well, the uh, there's some variation in the length uh, of each episode. They uh, the shorter I think the shortest one is about 25 minutes, and the longest one is 90 minutes. So they're all roughly in that range. I think if you average it out, they're probably 45 minutes, something like that. Um, and as far as still active, um, well, yeah, I mean I, it feels active to me at least. Um, there should be a I'm working on number 77 right now, so um, hopefully that'll be out in I don't know a week or so. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, after ever it comes back. Yeah, I'm definitely still going. I sometimes uh, think people would probably rather that I just shut up and went away, but you know, it's still stuck with me and people are still turning up. So I'm going to keep on, um, pushing out the episodes. We're 86 episodes in now, which is a little bit of an odd one because actually it's a fortnightly podcast, but that's because there were specials and the themed months take up more. There are um, eight for Napoleon month and, and so on. So it ends up being more than just um, 26 uh, in a year. 
Um, and I think that's part of the fun um, of the approach and that it, it won't be limited by time. Um, when people do stop listening, then, then I will shut up if, effectively. Um, there's no set length to the episodes. Generally, they're around 50 to 60 minutes. Um, but generally, my, my philosophy is to let people talk. If I'm the one doing a, a narrative of, of an event, um, I tend to keep it to about 40 minutes. I think 40 minutes of any one voice, uh, particularly my voice, um, kind of gets on people's nerves. Uh, I think that's one of the things that I've learned from a teacher, that if you talk at somebody for too long, they just go, mm, no, not for me. Not with my voice. Anyway, Everett, I think, is an exception to that rule. You know, you can listen to the guy all day. Um, but in terms of the interviews, my philosophy is generally to just let a conversation run. If it's interesting, why would you curtail it? And it goes back to what Everett was saying about, you know, you are your own boss. And so if you're in the middle of a really interesting discussion, Sometimes they're the questions that have to be asked, but equally there are the questions that almost ask themselves and it would be a, a, it would be a disservice really to the interviewee and the topic to not ask them. So I'm, I'm never afraid to go over the hour mark. In fact, the last episode to go out, uh, went out on Wednesday, was a two-hour interview with Marcus Beresford, a descendant of William Carr Beresford, about the life of his, his distant relative. And that was two hours and three minutes. And about an hour in, we were still only at Buenos Aires, uh, which, you know, if you think about the course of the, the period and, and the guy's life is, is nowhere, really. And I just thought, no, I'm not going to curtail this. I'm not going to split this into multiple parts. This is just brilliant. Um, and I think that's, that's the beauty of being an interviewer, that you can kind of tell when you're, you're digging up gold and, and just make the most of it. You make a very good point that I want to mention before I go on to my to my comments. You know, being a podcaster, you you have a, a a level of freedom that you don't get elsewhere. I mean, how many times have you watched CNN or 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 or, or whatever, and they say, "Well, well, I've got we I've got one more question for you, but we have thirty seconds left, so can you make it quick?" You know, kind of thing. Whereas if you're a podcaster. You know, you, you can just go on as long as you want to and, and don't break it up and lose the momentum. And, and, and uh, uh, if it goes an extra 20 minutes, then so what? The, your listeners will still undoubtedly listen to the whole thing. That's, that's what they bought into. So I think you make an extremely good point, Zach, about, about the, the, the freedom that you have in, in interviewing uh, or even just talking yourself if you find yourself going over time, but you know you've still got something important you want to say, or at least you're convinced it's important anyway, uh, then, then, then you, can, uh, you can do that. I think that's I absolutely guess right. Uh, sorry, and if I could just chip in with one thing. The sure, other please. Of course, today is that with smartphones, folks can just download the episode onto an app and listen on a commute to work. And if they get to an hour and they need to get off the train, then they can just pause it and come back to it another time. So, you know, the benefits of technology kind of enable us to be much laxer in terms of timekeeping as well. Oh, absolutely. I, I can tell you I, I'm very close to someone who used to do exactly that on, on a train commute from Burlington to Toronto, but you'll hear more about that story a little bit later. Uh, it, I guess it's my turn. I, I easily get confused here as to who's next, but... Uh, I think we did about 57 episodes, which I thought was probably more episodes than anyone had ever conceivably done 
on the subject, but I find now that it's 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 actually relatively low. Uh, they they averaged uh, about an hour and a quarter, and again, mostly it was back and forth comments. Uh, uh, he camera would ask a question, and 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 I would talk. Uh, I am accused, accused, mind you, of at one time talking forty five minutes straight. Now I I have I'm suspicious, but uh, a certain spouse is over here next to me, shaking her head up and down. So apparently I do that. I used to call that a, a perfect cure for insomnia. You know, this is, and, and by the way, which gets to the voices, I listening to the, the, the group of us, I think we all have voices that each in their own way probably go over quite well in, in, in a podcast. And Zach, you were, you were joking about how maybe your voice wasn't. I think you, your, your, your voice would be very, very easy to listen to for, for an hour straight or, 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 or whatever. Uh, so after me, I guess we go to uh, Alex. Well, thank you very much, David. <laughs> um, well, uh, I think what I'd say seriously to, um, to that was, I think a, a, too much freedom is, is a problem for me. And um, I think the only way I'm going to finish this is, is through structure. And, and, and I think this is probably what's going to help me through. So the whole thing is planned out. It's 12 times eight in terms of the episodes, but within each episode as well, um, I'm, I'm aiming to get, um, you know, to each interview is 10 minutes long and then I'm trying to wrap things up and I, and I don't like it as Alex, Alex uh, will, will know this. Um, trying to keep, keep Alex and Charles under two minutes. In, in radio, in professional radio, um, it's 40 seconds. So I made a, a documentary for, for, for BBC Radio 4 in, in the UK. And um, you, you don't want to have any voice speaking for more than 40 seconds uh, in a 30-minute in programme. And, and I think for something like this, that would be nowhere near enough. Um, but, but I'm trying to follow some of these rules, um, at least. Um, in terms of the number of episodes, so I've done eight um, 1792 and 1793 so far um but interspersed between these are 30 minute ish of those more discursive chats where you're able to explore thematic points in a way that isn't constrained by you're frozen and while he's gone i have to say he just drives me nuts um with all the 30 second limitations? Yeah, the 30 <laughs> second stuff. Um, uh, well, so just to say that in addition to the main episodes, I have um, some discursive alternatives, um, which are kind of bonus interview episodes. Because if I'm speaking to. I'll just wait to come back, you know, talk to them more generally at the same time about their latest book or their latest research, et cetera. Okay, uh, I, I think uh, I've, I've lost track here. Was that the last person? Yeah, and does, does anyone have any uh, discussion that you, you, you want to engage in on this question? Well, it's ironic that we have had a couple of technical glitches so far, given the, the next question. Uh, and the next question goes to start with Zach. What kind of challenges did you face uh, and what kind of appeals did you make to attract listeners? 
Well, we've kind of touched on on the big challenge for me already, which is the voice and having to come to terms <laughs> with the fact that <laughs> you listen to yourself back in a recording. And I, I know a few other people who have this same kind of hang up about their voice and just think, this is an incredibly tedious individual to listen to. Are people really going to tune into this? So setting that to one side, um, in terms of the appeals, I think the mixture and the variety was was always intended to be the appeal rather than a, a sole voice of authority uh, and trying to emulate what the others are doing so well um, or being solely conversational. Um, so having a lot of a, a mixture of opinion pieces and lots of interviews, um, but also the no paywall approach. And this is perhaps something that we might not have necessarily touched on. Um, but the, the free to access thing is a really, really bad business model. It's an appalling decision if you're an accountant. Um, but it, for me, I've always been invested in open access. I think that's partly a reflection of where UK universities are going at the moment. Um, and the fact that, you know, if things are behind a paywall that is frowned upon, I think it also speaks to, you know, if you're going to engage in the public, you know, if you're going to ask them to pay to listen, um, then, then that's asking a lot of people. Um, and so I, much later on, had to be cajoled, and I, and I really do mean um, cajoled, into Patreon. I was basically told to stop being so, um, there was an expletive in there, uh, stop being so very British um, about not liking to discuss money. Um, and in the end, I, I put together a Patreon account. So now some very, very generous people uh, sub me a little bit, uh, which helps to pay for the setup costs. You know, I think perhaps people aren't aware that if you're going to buy a particular class of editing software, that costs money. Uh, there's, there's basic equipment. You know, I had a hard drive meltdown in the midst of one interview, <laughs> just the, the blue screen of death. And, you know, it takes its toll. Um, and so you need to kind of have something to help cover those costs. Tone is, is obviously vital, you know, as we've kind of alluded to already. Um, accessibility is absolutely key. And that means not adopting a sort of solely ivory tower approach. And that feeds through into when you're asking questions. So you need to be able to prod your, your interviewee to speak and, and engage with you and therefore by extension the wider audience in such a way that they're not talking in um, purely theoretical terms. You know, the, the podcast isn't there to pontificate, it's there to educate. And I, I think sometimes it's important to make interviewees aware that, you know, these aren't university students necessarily. This might be somebody who's, who's picked up a Patrick O'Brien and just goes, you know what, I'd really like to know a little bit more. And so then they start to listen to us. In terms of other appeals, well, social media is obviously the key. Twitter is the obvious one. Um, but I'm, I'm one of those people, I'm sorry to admit, who perennially annoys people by plastering all of the Napoleonic Facebook forums with details of a new episode that's being out. Um, and I can almost hear people screaming in agony when they check their Facebook status and find notifications for 10 different forums all about the same episode. But it does help because you tap into lots of different audiences. Uh, and I've mentioned already about you know, the special themed month. So Irish month in particular has gone down particularly well. Uh, in that regard. So there are a few ways that personally I've, I've found you can appeal to people. Yeah, you, you make a, a, good, a good comment about how it's, it's necessary for you as a podcaster or any of your guests to recognize, especially if you have academic guests on, to recognize that the, the, the people out there in podcast world 
are not necessarily academics. In fact, I would hazard a guess that academics typically would be less likely to listen to a Napoleonic uh, podcast, whether it was by me or any of our distinguished guests here, uh, because they're, they're busy looking at, at original documents and, 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 and resources and libraries and so forth. So, you know, the average person out there is probably much more of an aficionado or, or, or an amateur historian than, than an academic. And that's kind of why we, 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 we sort of played off of Napoleon for Dummies, because it's meant for the average person. It's definitely not an academic uh, 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 book. But uh, as far as the, the paywall is concerned, uh, yeah, that's, that's an issue. Uh, I was naive, and, and you have to remember the business and it was all handled by camera. I was, I was simply the, the, the resident historian. Uh, and so I was surprised when, when it turned out that uh, after the first 10 episodes or so, uh, you, you had to pay. Now, you didn't have to pay very much, obviously, but, but you had to pay a little bit. Uh, and we, we promoted, and Zach, you're, you're wrong, uh, uh, although I see, I see, I take your point. The because uh, uh, I, I get you know all these multiple notifications uh, from from you know the thirty or so Napoleonic related websites that I, that I and I'm I'm afraid I've contributed to that that issue as well of the multiple uh, announcements. But uh, uh, another thing that we that we did uh, was merchandise. You have here a shameless promotion. It's always nice to have your 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 name on on a mug. And, and a certain familiar looking figure, but we, we had, we, we sold mugs and I say we, it was camera because he was doing the business in, uh, we had mugs and t-shirts and sweatshirts and I don't know what else. Uh, and, and so there was that. As far as technical challenges to go back to the first part, uh, <clears throat> we never really had much in the way of serious technical challenges. <laughs> I remember early on, I had a smoke detector I was living in in, in uh, Olympia, Washington, and in the early podcast, I had a smoke detector that was beeping due to a low battery, and and you know it was very difficult to get to my high ceiling library, so I ignored it. But we started getting emails about it, so I risked life and limb to change the battery to to placate uh, our our listeners. We did try one episode with me on video but it ended up just being kind of a boring talking head. I mean, if there's anything worse than listening to me talk for, you know, an, an indefinite amount of time is to have to look at me talking for an indefinite period of time. So, and it took a lot of bandwidth as well. So, so we, we, we dropped that, uh, that, that idea entirely. Okay. Alex, you're up. Hi there. Well, I, I, I've uh, switched to my phone, so hopefully um, you know, th th there may not be any more technical problems, but but doing so proved such a traumatic thing that I lost track of what the question is. Would you, would you mind repeating it? <laughs> the question is, what kind of challenges did you face and what kind of appeals did you make to attract listeners? Yeah. Well, I um, have come at this, and I suppose this is related to the question of, you know, how whether you do um, go for Patreon or, or stick adverts in, you know, the, the machine wants you to to make money out of it. I mean, this is just a hobby for me. Um, it's it's a very uh, laborious hobby, uh, but but a bit a very enjoyable one. And so I, I don't necessarily intend to, to do too much to to push it. But 
what I, and, and I would say as well that I'm right at the start of this process. So um, one of the reasons I decided to go for the for the full 24-year period rather than, for example, starting in 1805, it could have been an alternative or, you know, pick, pick, pick a year, was that um, I want to have got up a good head of steam by the time I hit 1805. And that then each episode, I mean, there's going to be, you know, it's going to be very, very busy. And while uh, 1795 is gripping, uh, and stay tuned, season two coming shortly, um, you know, 1805 is going to be nuts. And thereafter, it will be, it will be very, very busy for, for a long time. Um, so what I've done is, I guess I've, I mean, in the day job, you, you, there, there is a, a sort of template for communication strategies that you do. So I'm trying to apply some of those principles and um, intend to sort of ramp up my approach throughout um, throughout throughout the coming years, which is a very long way of saying I've started doing a I've started tweeting, but I haven't got the Facebook page going yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, this of course leads us to uh, Everett. Well, um, as far as challenges, um, well, I do, I do everything myself. So I had to learn how to do audio editing and I have to deal with, you know, posting and hosting and all that stuff. And I'm not very technically minded. So that was, you know, was and is an ongoing challenge. Um, as far as appeals, um, I think at the end of the day, you know, they've done studies on this. So they tell me. And the number one way people find out about a podcast and start listening to it is word. It's still just word of mouth. And number two is Googling topic podcast. So, you know, I post on Twitter, I post on Facebook, but ultimately um, maybe this is a comforting lie. I tell myself, but ultimately you have to have faith in yourself, um, you know, your own, abilities your own um uh you know the quality of the product you're putting out uh and in the topic you know sometimes i worry and i I remember you know i'm telling this is like the greatest story of modern history i shouldn't have to worry all i've got to do is do my job and people will come because they want to hear this story um and and you know it's it's tough because this is my livelihood but at the end of the day, you just got to have faith. And that's the only, uh, that's the only solution to that problem I've come up with is just, you know, keep plotting ahead and trying to do my best. Um, it's a little bit nerve wracking sometimes, but um, I think that's the only way to do it. I, I understand completely. Uh, anybody have any questions or comments uh, amongst the group? We are moving Right along with great vigor. Oh, sorry, sorry, David. Can, can may I? Um, of course, please. Well, just to say to Everett, um, and, and I think the challenge, the biggest challenge for me actually was making the commitment. And on the first day of sort of hitting publish, sort of releasing this, you know, baby that you've had in your head for so long out into the world is quite an um, intimidating thing to do. And um, just to have one listener was great. Uh, and you know that, that, that that'll do for me. So, um, but but I think you know we, we would all. Um, it, it is a lot of work. It's it's a fair amount of work to, to, to do all this. And 
I think uh, hopefully we can be a mutually supporting uh, little society here. Um, you know, I think everyone here would want um, Everett's podcast to succeed and to keep going as it has throughout the whole period. And of course, for Zach's to continue for many years, um, continuing these discussions. And I, I would just say the way the way over this challenge and all of these challenges we've discussing, I think, is more, more, more content, more episodes and more. You know, I, I would love it if, if there are one, two, three new podcasts that start in the next 12 months that, that keep coming along, because in a sense, we all of us are a team uh, representing the period, as it were, on Apple Podcasts or whatever against. And, and, and there is so much that this period has to offer, which is which is underappreciated by, um, I, you know, I just think, I, I think there's, there's such a great story to tell. And, um, and I think we all look up to David as, as someone who, 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 you know, did this in, um, for, the, for the first time in, in presenting something so comprehensive and showed the way, paved what was, you know, showed us what was possible. Well, 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 thank you for that. I, I appreciate it. And, and you make an outstanding point, by the way. Uh, you know, there's, it's often said there's more books written about Napoleon than about anybody else in history. So a new one comes out and someone says, well, what more is there to say? Why would anyone want to write another book? Tell that to Alexander McAbrezzi. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, there's always a reason for another book with another point of view you know, another opinion, another approach. There's new evidence that's, that comes out. You know, history is not dead. We, we read the stories about the Dead Sea Scroll fragments that were just found. There's always new information coming out. And so I totally agree. You know, I think the, the more the merrier. If five more podcasts on Napoleon showed up, <clears throat> I think that would be good for podcasting. And it would be good for getting the story of Napoleon out and getting it out in different ways than perhaps the, the four of us have, have been getting it out. Any other questions or comments? Okay, then we'll go to question five and I will remind our audience there are eight questions. So we are, we are doing fine. Uh, and some of these are gonna go quickly even with my answers. Uh, what can you tell us about the reach of your podcast? Do you have an estimate of how many people you have reached and in which countries they are found? <clears throat> and I, I guess I'm up on this one. It's, it's, it's a, not an easy question. When I wrote this question, you know, I, I, I recognize that, especially for, 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 for me, it's, it was going to be difficult. And I get this information from, from Cameron, who, again, he, he, he was a technical person. He, he, he did everything. I just did the, I just talked, you know, that's all I had to do. Uh, and back in 2006, there, there wasn't a very good podcast statistics software. And apparently today there, it isn't a whole lot better according to him. I'll be interested in hearing other points of view on that. And apparently unbeknownst to me until I asked the question, uh, we use several different, uh, hosting platforms over over the years but Cameron estimates that we reached at least a million people and possibly far more uh, there's also no way to know how many people heard every single episode how many of them stuck it out he thinks 
maybe 50,000, you know, who knows? It's, 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 it's really just an estimate. As to countries, well, we had a worldwide appeal and image, and I imagine that we hit all the English-speaking countries and quite a few others. I know uh, people in, 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 in Europe and Mexico who have contacted me saying that they like it. So we, we had a fairly, as I suspect everybody will be able to say, uh, a, a fairly worldwide approach. Uh, and with that, I'll ask Alex. <laughs> well, well, how many listeners? I mean, um, I know exactly how many listeners, and it's not a million. Um, it, it, it's it's quite significantly lower than that. Uh, I mean, I, I started on started in January, and um, uh, I, you know, I, I'm guessing. Well, it's it's about it's three four hundred um, per per episode. Um, roughly speaking um uh, what's the thing i guess there's different ways of looking at it of course and um the thing that uh i look at is the it comes up with an average estimated audience um which and and every episode you know that is that is going up which is encouraging um it sort of matters to a point and one of the one of the biggest worries was what would this question of how big the audience is have a start to get inside my head as a, a negative thing that then undermines the sort of motivation to keep going, to keep doing it. And clearly it's helpful to have, to have a growing audience and, and that's, that's very encouraging, but I would say I care just as much about the sort of feedback that you get on, on social media, you know, positive, encouraging comments mean an awful lot. And, um, and so I'm really, really grateful for all of those. But the, the other thing is in terms of the, um, uh, the, the global reach, about half of my listeners are, in, are listening from the UK. And half, so, you know, when I go to bed um, at night and, and, and sort of check the figures, if I check them in the morning, they will always have jumped up because there's a, you know, the, the people are listening around the world. And um, I, I guess, I mean, I, you know, judging by the uh, global audience for this um, this panel ev event, I mean, it's great to see so many people from all around the world. You know, I, I think that's probably reflected in the listeners of, of of the other podcasts as well, but particularly Everett's, which has achieved such a, a you know an impressive following on, on on social media and and is so so well established. Okay. Uh, uh then that'll bring us to Everett. Got muted there. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, well, I've got, um, as far as downloads, I've got, I was hoping to hit 2.5 million before this panel so I could just say 2.5 million, but I'm not quite there yet. Um, of course, that's not 2.5 million people. You know, it's uh, 76 episodes, divided by, although not everyone has listened all the way to the end. So it's, it's tricky, but I don't know, tens of thousands, I guess. Um, I think, I think somewhere around 50,000, that's the number I have in my head. I'm not sure how quite how accurate that is. Um, as far as countries, um, that's something that really surprised me when I, when I started this show, I assumed most of the listeners would be American because I'm American. And then there would be, you know, a smattering of Brits, Australians, Canadians, um, but actually, um, like only about uh, three quarters of the audience is from the English speaking world. One out of every four listeners are, are elsewhere, 
And that really surprised me. Uh, and it was really gratifying to see. I, I never imagined that, you know, people in Indonesia or Brazil would be, you know, caring what I have to say. Um, and, you know, I've heard people tell me that it helps them learn English, which is awesome. Um, but basically the only countries, I, I, I looked, looked this up, the hosting service I use allows you to look at country by country. Oh. And um, I've got no North Korean listeners, I've got no Eritrean listeners. I have a couple in Cuba, um, but basically it's places that have repressive governments that uh, limit internet access and places in Central Africa where there's not good infrastructure for you know listening to podcasts. Um, and that's about it. Basically everywhere else, Greenland, I've only got one download. So the Greenlander who listened, I guess, didn't like it. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's been, it's one of been one of the, one of the, the most, uh, heartening things doing this is seeing, um, that it, you know, it has taken off places that I never would have imagined that there was even an interest in Napoleon, not to mention hearing some American guy talk about him. There's a major Napoleonic museum in Havana. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not a bit surprised that you have at least some, uh, listeners, and they may very well be associated with, with the museum. And that brings us to Zach. Yeah, a bit like Everest. I, I was kind of chasing a, a figure, um, although my figure, I'm afraid, is a little bit more modest. So I was chasing 33,000 um, downloads in total. I didn't quite get there in time for this panel, but it, it's creeping in that direction. Um, and that averages out to about 450 people uh, an episode um, now. The audience is predominantly UK-based. Um, I, I suspect that Alex and I are perhaps using the same um, platform, and so we might be kind of using the same kind of algorithms in terms of reach. Um, and I'd say that the vast majority of, of the audience is from English-speaking countries, 47% from the UK, 22% from the US. But in all, there are listeners in 75 countries. Um, almost all of Europe listens, uh, or I should say, there's, there's somebody in, in almost every country uh, in Europe, not Croatia, interestingly. Don't know what I did uh, to annoy the Croatians, but there we go. I'll have to make amends at some point. Um, some further afield. So, for example, South Africa, Tanzania, Argentina, India. Uh, but like Everett, you know, you don't find downloads in, in China or, or North Korea. Um, the audience, what I found from the demographic data that I get is overwhelmingly male, 80 percent. Uh, of listeners are male. I think that probably is a reflection of, of military history um, and the types of appeal that it has had um, and the challenges that military history still faces in terms of opening itself up to engage ladies who are doing brilliant research but, but perhaps might not class themselves as military historians. Um, and I think it says quite a lot about the appeal. I mean, I had no delusions of grandeur. I figured that if 100 people turned up to listen, um, then, then that was great because if you had 100 people turn up to a face-to-face -face event, that would be mind-blowing. That would be an incredible turnout. Um, what quite struck me was that it's not popular in France. I don't know what other folk, I'd be interested to know if anybody else has got stats on the engagement from France. I don't know if it's the language barrier, which I suspect is probably an element of it, but we know we've all been to France. We know how brilliantly they speak the language. I wonder if perhaps it's because Napoleon's legacy is such a hotly contested topic in France. And we've seen that whole debate that's going on now over how to commemorate the bicentenary. And I'd be interested again to, to hear whether other folks have that kind of thought on whether that's perhaps a factor. 
Yeah, I've okay. noticed that as well. I, I uh, the the France is a black hole. When you look at Europe on my listener map, uh, France is is lagging behind a lot of countries that, um, you know, that you would think that have worse kind of general understanding of English. Um, you know, it's much more popular in Sweden than it is in France. I, uh, and I, and I, I assume that that part of that is maybe some little chauvinism. You know, I don't want to hear what some American guy who doesn't even have a PhD has to say about the emperor. Um, I assume some of that is, you know, English. And I assume some of that is, you know, like you said, it is um, a much more uh, it's it's more alive there than it is here. It's political there. I mean, um I'm forgetting who it was now. One of the one of the past French presidents wrote a book about Napoleon. You know, a, a very political book about current France and how Napoleon related to it. And that's just not. I mean, no one in America thinks of Napoleon that way as a going concern like that. So that's a, that's a hurdle. I, I I don't begin to know how to approach that. Um, I I would assume that probably we need someone a, a French person to give this a shot and, and give their perspective. Yes, yeah, I, I would be interested to hear what podcasts there are in French um, about about the period. Yeah, I don't know if there's any French podcasts, although I, I assume there are. Uh, the, uh, the attitude I'm guessing, and, 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 and Everett touched on it, I think a lot of French would say, well, we have so many good French historians about Napoleon, why do we need to to hear from these these Americans or the or these Brits? Uh, and uh, you know, I, I I would disagree with with that attitude, of, of course. But I think that might very well be a function. And Alex, uh, we're having an issue with the uh, highlighting now. Everett is still okay. There we go. There's my smiling face. Uh, at any rate. Uh, <clears throat> Anybody have any comments or questions on the topic? Okay, good. Let's uh, let's go to number six because we we want to have time for questions. Uh, uh, number six, we start with Alex. What kind, if any, feedback do you get about your show? And I know we we've, we've touched on this already to some extent, so this may not take very long. Yeah, I just say uh, you know I've had really nice comments on on Twitter and. Um, Every time I get a nice comment, it makes a really big difference. It's it's a huge morale boost and, and really encouraging. So um, keep it coming, people. <laughs> Everett? Everett? Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I, um, you know, not being an academic, my only contact with the public is when someone gets in touch with me. So that's something I really thrive on. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work doing this show and there's times when it's kind of discouraging, you know, you spend a whole day, a couple months ago, I spent a whole day translating some stuff and I don't speak French very well. So that's a laborious process for me. And I finished it and I kind of sat back and I thought, I don't think I can use any of this. And I didn't end up using any of it. And so when you have a day like that, it is um, really nice to be able to, open up Twitter, open up my email, open up Facebook and see that, you know, this is important to people and that they're, they're getting something out of it. And I'm, I'm not just sitting in my room, you know, spinning my wheels, doing nothing. 
Exactly. So, um, that it's, it's really vital. And if you, I know that there's people who listen here and I just, you know, say thank you for those of you who do get in touch with me and, and talk to me about the show and give your thoughts. It, it, it really helps. Uh, and I've had listeners, um, you know, a couple months ago, I was talking about um, the, uh, the British declaration of war in, uh, at the end of the uh, Peace of Amiens. And there's a great anecdote of um, someone in parliament speaking in his, uh, in his volunteer uh, militia uniform. And I thought, God, that's great. I want to use that for the show. But I couldn't find uh, a, a, a description or, or depiction of the uniform. So I wanted to describe it, you know, for the narrative and I couldn't track it down for the life of me. And I, you know, I was getting to the point where I was like, I can't spend hours and hours on this one little detail. So I just threw it out there on Twitter. And within like a few hours, a couple different listeners had tracked down uh, uh, illustrations, paintings, descriptions of these, you know, this, this yeomanry uniform, a totally nondescript army unit. And I'm always amazed by the by how, um, how how so many of the listeners know so much about the topic and are so engaged, and have been really helpful actually helping me track stuff down. So that's one of the things I love about doing this is that there is the relationship between between us and and the audience. Okay, Zach. Yeah, I strongly agree with what Everett and Alex have said. Those positive comments um, quite often they they tend to be few and far between because a lot of the vast majority will be silent and you kind of assume that the fact that people keep coming back is in itself that that endorsement but those comments that do come through uh, do mean a huge amount and they are a massive morale boost uh, i think particularly perhaps this is just because the napoleon system has only ever existed in a world where there's been a lockdown but particularly when you're sat alone in a room talking to a screen uh, or if you're doing it solo, then you're, you're talking to the walls effectively. Um, you, you do kind of have that, that sense of, is, is this achieving something? Is this getting the tone right? Um, I think this, this also ends up being kind of one of the challenges of podcasting, that you do get those odd pieces of fan mail, but equally anyone who's going to put a podcast out there, whatever it might be on, has to consider that you're putting yourself out there um, and everyone is going to, critique um, and everyone is a critic and that's right and fair you know you put yourself out there people are going to judge your output and gauge whether or not they want to come back for more I think it's possibly also inevitable therefore that you will get trolls certainly that's been my experience not extensively by any means um, but I have had people tear into episodes um, by going about oh it didn't cover x and y and then you have to sort of politely go back and say well perhaps you took the time to listen to minute x y and z then you'd find that actually it's covered in in a five minute segment um some people will have just kind of read wikipedia and think that they have all the knowledge and they they get genuinely offended by your opinion because they have a contrary opinion based on their wikipedia research um and the fact that you disagree with them causes them great offense um, but having said that for the most part people are very fair and some of the most enjoyable exchanges I've actually had are people who come back and say, look, you know, you didn't mention, and I'll use one example. There was a, a chap from, uh, I can't remember now if it was Belgium or the Netherlands, um, who had a really productive discussion with me because I, in my discussion, my 40 minute summary of Waterloo, the Waterloo campaign, didn't discuss the significance of Propontia and the Nassau Brigade um, on the, the evening of the 16th. 
And so he said to me, well, look, how can you call this Waterloo the real story, which is what I, I build the episode as, if you haven't covered that? And I said, look, you're absolutely right. There's no question that was a vital element of the campaign. And that decision to defy Wellington's orders and stay at the crossroads is one of those decisions that the campaign hinged upon. But actually to go into that level of depth within the context of a 40 minute episode where you're talking to a much wider public, it just wasn't feasible. In the end, we had this kind of really amicable agreement where I said, yeah, okay, I can understand your perspective. That's really interesting. So it is nice to have those people who come in and, and counter you. But as, as you say, Everett talks about the power of Twitter and when you can just kind of put that comment out there and people kind of come in with all of these different thoughts and, and angles perhaps that you haven't considered, that's just incredible. When people give you recommendations about, you know, have you considered having this person on? That's also really helpful for me in terms of diversifying the, the interviewship. And, and yeah, as, as you say, those positive comments, when they come in, just mean the world. They, they kind of make you beam for the rest of the day. Oh, ab ab absolutely. Uh, and, you know, my podcast was a lot earlier uh, than, than, than now. And so we didn't have to deal with trolls so much. That was in an era before trolls uh, and uh, so on. But of course, uh, we, Cameron and I each have received over the, over the years quite a few emails from, from all over the world thanking us for doing the podcast. I'm, I'm pretty, as some of you know, pretty active on Facebook for, for better or for worse. And I get quite a few you know, comments there or on Messenger, uh, you know, thanking me, maybe you know, making a comment. Interestingly enough, uh, rather than trolls uh, uh, or arguments, what I tend to, to get is requests for information. I think that some people, they, 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 they listen to, 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 you know, David Markham, you know, pontificate for a while and, and assume that, uh, number one, he must know everything that there ever was to know about Napoleon, which is, of course, extraordinarily wrong. Uh, and second, he has nothing better to do than to, to answer my question, however lengthy it might be, uh, about Napoleon. And, and I do my best, especially if it's a high school student or someone like that, that that's listened and has a, has a question. You know, I, I, I try to take the time to, to, provide, to provide answers, but sometimes I just, you know, there's, there's only so much that, that I can do. Uh, any, anyone have any other comments on this? A relatively straightforward question. I guess I, I had a question for for some of the other panelists. Um, what what type of um, trolls do you tend to get? Because I tend to get ones who think that I'm a, an apologist for all of Napoleon's crimes. Although maybe that'll change when I finish the Haiti series. Um, I, I've gotten a few that have accused me of, you know, whitewashing the crimes of the British Empire or the Russians, but people tend <laughs> to think of me as being a, a shameless shill for Napoleon. And I'm curious if other people have gotten that or if people are, if you're getting it from the other side. Well, when I was um, discussing this with, with Charles Esdale, who is not exactly neutral when it comes to Napoleon, <laughs> but he made the point that it's, hard to be neutral when it comes to such a dominant figure uh, and that um you know you will inevitably be drawn into making judgments and discussions and the interesting thing is that editorial decisions that then flow from that in terms of what you choose to talk about and what you choose to not talk about is significant so in these early years 
um, about Toulon. And um, just earlier today, I was recording with David Andres about Vendomio and the whiff of grape shot. And there is a debate about the extent to which Bonaparte was the decisive force on 4th and 5th October 1795. And, you know, it, you can see both sides. But um, and, and so I wouldn't say it's trolling, but I, I, in fact, I, I think it's quite good to, to, because if, if we could all agree on everything, then the, it would all be very boring, wouldn't it? But there is so much to disagree on. That's what makes this period so good. Right. That's very true. Okay, let's yeah. go on. Oh, go ahead. It's it's interesting whatever it says because I have the the flip side to that to an extent, which is that people hear a British accent and they instantly think, oh, this guy's just going to be an apologist for empire. And actually, very early on, I made a, a very deliberate decision to take a piece of my research, which my day job, but I'm a PhD researcher looking at crime and punishment in the British Army. So I took Badahoff, Theodore Rodrigo and San Sebastian, a really appalling example, borderline a war crime from the British uh, side, and, and made that an extended episode. And that was a deliberate decision to set a tone, if you like, that, you know, yes, we might talk about the Peninsula War and what the British Army did, but we will cover a warts and all perspective. Equally, when um, I covered Napoleon for Napoleon Month, I offered my perspective, which was somewhere down the middle. But then I took two people who are on the other side, on opposite ends of that spectrum, Marcus Cribb um, and Luke Daly Groves, uh, two well-known folks over here within the podcasting world, um, both had um, episodes on History Hack, for example, and I'd let them effectively have that discussion between them and I kind of guided them and asked awkward questions of both sides. So I think there is that temptation to assume that we're going to be one of the two polarised views and the idea that you can actually see the wood for the trees and have a nuanced opinion doesn't readily occur to people until they actively engage in what you're saying. Um, but yeah, the assumptions are always there. Oh, absolutely. We are a little low on time. So let's go on to question seven, which I think is pretty straightforward and, and, and may have fairly brief answers. And we start with Everett. Have you ever had guests on your show? And if so, who were some of them? Yeah, so this is something I've struggled with. Just, I mean, the, you know, what I'm trying to do, I, I want it to be a cohesive thing. You know, like I said earlier, everything flows, you know, everything should flow from something that came earlier. And so it's hard to, uh, you know, it's like a military operation. You need some unity of command there. And so it's been hard for me to kind of find out how to incorporate guests. A lot of the folks I have on, I've been friends who I use as kind of sounding boards for the show. So I kind of know already what they think about what I, you know, where I'm going and they've got some idea of what I'm trying to do. I did though have, um, I was lucky enough to go up to the uh, U.S. Army Command and General Staff College <clears throat> and uh, interview some folks there. And we had a really fun like round table discussion. And um, uh, Dr. Abel was part of that, who's going to be presenting, I think tomorrow. Um, and it, that actually is one of the fan favorite episodes because it was just, it was very informal. We just kind of chatted about, um, about, about Napoleon, about this era of history. And I'd like to do that again at some point, because I keep getting, it's been two years now. I keep getting feedback um, about, uh, about that episode, about how much people enjoyed it. So I'd like to try to replicate that at some point if I can. Okay. Uh, Zach. Yeah, I mean, as we've covered already, my my podcast is ostensibly built around interviews. So there are more episodes within where I'm interviewing guests than, than there are just me um, talking at folks. 
Uh, I think the challenge there was to have a really broad range. Uh, obviously, in terms of gender balance, that's hugely important. Um, but also in terms of the topics, nationalities and career stages. So, for example, I've had, in fact, there are a few people on the, the um, attending tonight who I've had. So, for example, Beatrice de Graaf is, is in the uh, audience, um, esteemed professor at Utrecht, Alicia Lasper, University of Oviedo, Ed Koss, United States Commander General Staff College, as, as Everett's um, kind of alluded to. Equally, folks from an, an army perspective, so offering a different slant in it, so Andrew Fields, very prolific author on, on the French perspective at Waterloo. Um, I've mentioned already Marcus Cribb, a heritage expert. So to have those different voices and those different slants on the period um, is, is, is really useful. Equally, Jacqueline Reiter, hello Jackie, is, is in the audience. So you can see a, a huge range of people. Um, and I think it was important not to just choose predictable, famous faces. It would have been very easy to go with just trying to, to canvas all of the big names and bring those folks in. But some of the cutting edge research and the really ultra new perspectives are actually coming from the folks who aren't well known. And I wanted to give them a voice and a platform to, to share that, um, which is sometimes a challenge. You have to take a plunge with people who you don't know. And sometimes there are interviews that need considerable work. Sometimes the interviewee struggles. There might be nerves that might be they can't really handle awkward phrasings of questions if you're going to be deliberately provocative in order to spark that discussion. Um, sometimes editing is needed because folks try and, and relax a little bit too much and descend into flippancy. And so there, there have been times where you, you, know, you come away from a question and go, well, that's got to be cut um, because it just doesn't work. So yeah, loads of guests and, and variety has to be the watchword for me. Right. Uh, we weren't based on guests nearly as much as some of the other podcasts, but we had a number uh, over the years, especially toward the end, uh, the ones that immediately come to mind, uh, I think you'll recognize most of them, Rafe Blafarb, uh, Jerry Gallagher, Alexander Micabredzi, Nick Stark, all people with very different areas of expertise and different points of view. And, and, and the interviews, I thought, uh, went, went extremely well. And uh, I'm glad to see so many other interviews being done as well. Uh, and that will lead us to Alex. Yes. And um I have, uh, well, I've got about 10, 12 uh, interviewees who appear in multiple episodes um, uh, for, the first, for the first two series. Um, and one thing I've sort of hesitated about saying, but I've tried to, I mean, I, you want a diversity of voices. I mean, this, this is an important, important factor and, and all kinds of diversity are, are, are good and important, but I'm particularly trying to make sure that there's at least one woman on each episode. Um, I kind of hesitate to say that, but it, 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 it has not been hard to find um, authoritative and um, impressive uh, women who can, who can talk about the period, and I hope to continue doing that. Um, but, you know, the whole thing is, um, in terms of guests on the show, planning it out. So this is what I've been... This is season two, and I've been living with this for a while, kind of filling it in. It takes ages to, you know, it's, it's, I get into a bath every night and, and plan it all out, uh, uh, you know, think it all through. It's, it's all part of the fun. Um, but I think the reason it's, it's good to have guests on is because, for me, I don't think I had ever had a conversation about Napoleon Bonaparte with anyone outside my dad before doing this. So it might be slightly overkill in terms of, um, you know, the, the effort involved to be able to talk to people about it. But maybe I should have just um, 
um, join the Masena Society or, 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 or but but um, anyway, it, it's it's all very good fun. Good. Well, we're running low on time, so I want to go right to the last question, uh, and we start with Zach. Do you have any interesting or poignant stories to tell about your experience as a Napoleonic podcaster? I'll, I'll keep this brief, um, not least because I've spoken far too much as it is already, but there are a couple for me. Um, one is that when I was doing some publicity for the Waterly Remembered series, um, I was very fortunate to be interviewed by Dan Snow, who for folks uh, who aren't familiar is one of the big names of, of public history over here in the UK. If there's a history documentary, nine times out of ten, um, it will be presented by Dan Snow. And, and I grew up watching him. Uh, so that was a, a really surreal experience uh, to be interviewed by him. And then the second one was kind of a, an offshoot of that. Um, I mentioned History Hack, where I'm very fortunate to present a miniseries alongside Marcus called Sharpshooters. But uh, one of the other things that History Hack does is they have a series of Sharps reunions where they get the cast members of the Bernard Cornwell series together. And one of the first times that I was put into a guest interview, there was a room full of myself, Sean Bean and a few other prominent folks from the Sharp series. And that, that was a truly mind-blowing experience. But as somebody who came to the period um, through the Sharps novels and later the series, to, to be listening uh, to, to this voice coming into your ears and thinking, that sounds exactly like Richard Sharp and Eddard Stark out of Game of Thrones. And then the other half of your brain is going, well, of course it does, you fool. He's Sean Bean. Get a grip. Um, so, so yeah, th those are my two uh, my two experiences. Yeah, I, I one time I had a chance to meet one of the, the the characters, the one who carried the big blunderbuss, and he actually brought the blunderbuss with him. So I got to hold, but not fire. You know, the actual item that was used on the show. Well, I've got a, a very different and much more personal story, and it's a little bit longer. Than, than some of the others, but I think you'll find it interesting. I, I call it a tale of two cities or a tale of two weddings. You know, you'll see why. In, in 2008, the International Napoleonic Society had a conference in, in Corsica. Uh, and Cameron Riley uh, came so that I could do some on-site podcasts with them. I also had a musical troupe from Seattle there to do some scenes for a musical about Josephine that they had been working on. This, there was the director, there was a young man who played Napoleon and a beautiful young woman who played Josephine. Several times, I noticed that Cameron was missing in action. And frankly, I got a little bit irritated by that. Come on, Cameron, we're supposed to be doing some of these, these things. Later, I understood that he was getting to know the young lady better. In due course, she moved to Australia. They got married and now have a delightful young son named Fox. I joke to them, they love it, that the fox had a fox. But wait, there's more. In 2009, the INS was having its annual Congress in Montreal, Canada. Earlier that year, I had received an email from a young woman living in Burlington, Ontario, about a 30 minute drive from Toronto. She had been listening to the podcast on her commuting train because uh, she worked in Toronto, and was very interested in Napoleon. She had a little Napoleon collection and so on. We communicated, and it turned out she was a scientist and liked using some of her software, imaging software, to look at Napoleonic battlefields as Napoleon would have seen them. 
I found that to be a very fascinating approach, and I invited her to present at the Congress. I and others encouraged her to present at the next CRE, which I, I think was in Charleston. Uh, and she also ended up presenting to conferences in Malta and Las Vegas. One thing led to another, and I moved to Toronto and we got married on December 2nd, 2011. December 2nd, does that date sound familiar? Coincidence? I don't think so. So the Napoleon 101 podcast was influential in ways we could hardly have imagined at the beginning. And now we will go to Alex. That's very, very good. I couldn't possibly follow any of that. Um, I mean, I, I was going to talk about, um, it's, it's funny, isn't it? You know, when, when the, the history books step out of the page, and I, and I suppose for many of the historians listening, this will be, you know, the sort of bread and butter. But for ordinary punters, the moments when you suddenly find yourself confronted with actual history is, is quite striking. And uh, I, I recall nothing to do with the podcast, I'm afraid, but I, I was a travel journalist even further back in the day and found myself on one of the islands off Naples where, uh, and an, an outdoor church, which had been bombarded by British frigates uh, during, I think they were after Mura. Um, and um, the, the scene was unbelievably, it, you know, it was sunset. It was, it was the sort of Capri mode um, and it really, it was, it was really quite visceral and 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 felt very real, as if as if not a second had passed. But I think what I'd say is that the, the antidote, just to come back to the earlier thing, which links up to this in terms of poignant moments or intense moments, is that the antidote to trolling is is that diversity of voices. And one example of that was um, Christy Pakikaro on um, British motives in the Saint Domingue, the, the British intervention. Um, and and she, she has a very clear view about about that, and um, you know, the, the, it, and one that I was um, entirely signed up to is very straightforward case of imperialist expansion. Um, but Pete, but Alex, uh, Mika Baridze, and, and Charles Esdale were able to offer a slightly nuanced alternative approach, which is more about strategic interests. And anyway, I have to listen to the episode to, to, to get all of that. But 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 that was really helpful and a, and a useful antidote. And the way the reason I just mentioned that here is to come to I think I think the most intense moment, the most mind-blowing moment so far has been in, in discussion with Christy about her sense of Napoleon as a figure who, you know, we have this this image of him reading and digesting all those those great works by uh you know homer i suppose but ossian he was very keen on as well although obviously we have an asterisk next to ossian but um uh, she was linking back his approach to ideas of masculinity and um even almost consumerism which i couldn't possibly explain today because it, it, it was just totally blew my mind but th there are moments <laughs> when perspectives are challenged in a really fundamental way which are always um very rewarding and and exciting very good and uh, everett you get the last word well um i mean we've already talked about listener feedback and um that's something you know i've gotten th heard things from listeners over the years you know what someone once told me that they that they listened the whole show through on repeat on repeat while they were in rehab and it helped them get through rehab Never imagined I would help someone through rehab, but apparently it did. And that was very gratifying. Um, 
And, you know, I've heard other, you know, someone once got in touch from Venezuela saying, um, you know, it was when things were really bad over there and, you know, saying, you know, this has helped me put the things going on in my country into context. Thank you for that. And again, that's not something something I ever thought I would be doing. And it was really gratifying to hear that. And then lastly, um, being here, doing this with you guys has been really, really uh, special for me. I I mean, the, the lineup of this symposium is just chock full of people who have influenced me. I mean, I've spent, I was trying to think the other night how many hours I've spent with Dr. Bruce's books and, you know, to be on the same, I mean, technically we're, we're following up on him, right? <laughs> uh, he opened for us. And so that, that to me is um, just being here with, with you guys and uh, sharing this, you know, this great symposium with so many of these big names has been really a huge honor for me. Very humbling. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. Well, that's pretty good. And I want to thank all of our, our panelists. Uh, Alexander Mikabredzi is probably tearing his hair out at this point, given the, the, the time. But Alex, if you have some questions that you would like to pose for us, uh, now would be a time. See how much left? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, you're getting no sympathy, my friend. <laughs> So we have. So let me ask. I'll ask you questions because I've been following the uh, audience questions. But I'm going to put Alex Stevenson's hat on. You only have 25 seconds to answer them. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, Alex, you go first. Uh, so the question has been asked by several participants, and the first question is: one book, single book, on the Paulian period that you recommend. <laughs> uh, okay. This is, this is such an amazing book. It's absolutely brilliant. Published 2019. It's by a really well-respected um, Austrian, I think, uh, professor. It, it, he attempts to rehabilitate uh, a man who has been uh, written off so many times. And this shows him as uh, someone who was playing a decisive role. Um, in a, but, but this is proper revisionist history. I really, really recommend it. <laughs> Just on time, Everett. Uh, for me, I'm going to cheat and pick a two volume. The uh, the Georges Lefebvre, the old, uh, I think it's from the 60s, uh, Georges Lefebvre on uh, two, two volumes on Napoleon. I just, I come to that back to that book all the time. I love the language. I love, he's so, you know, fluent and uh, eloquent and uh, just has a, you really get that feeling that you're up, you know, getting the, the eagle, uh, eagle's eye view of history. And um, like I said, I come back to it all the time. I've probably read it cover to cover three times and I, you know, flip, flip it open to where I'm reading from all the time. I don't know, whatever reason, all the books I've read about Napoleon, that's the one that's probably stuck with me the most. Zach? Oh, so, oh yeah, Zach, you're still there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm still here. I'm, I'm doing an Alex and I've just uh, grabbed my one, which is Rory Muir's. I've, I've also done an Everest. In fact, I'm, I'm picking a two volume, but this is Rory Muir's uh, biography of Wellington primarily because not only does it give a, a great history of the, the period from the British perspective, but Roy is just a, a master at the art of writing narrative history. It's an utterly effortless read. Uh, volume one is 900 pages and you don't feel like you're trolling through uh, a 900 page book. It's, it's just sublime. If you want to know how to write history, read that book. David, 25 seconds. If you oh my. Uh, if, 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 if you didn't know anything at all about Napoleon, I would shamelessly recommend Napoleon for Dummies. But anyone in this group, of course, is way beyond that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat and pick two books. 
Andrew Roberts' fairly recent biography of Napoleon is about as comprehensive as, as I've ever seen. And, and your book, Alex, on the wars of Napoleon is, is <laughs> uh, even though I have yet to receive a copy, you did send me some, some the material, you know, digitally, and it is extraordinarily uh, good and extremely well received. So, and Thank both you. of these are, are long reads. Thank you. And I do need royalty money. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, let me ask uh, just one more question and that will be it. And I think that's, uh, that's the question more with the craft of podcasting and being a fellow podcaster, I, I can feel your pain, although my, my reach is much smaller. I only do for Georgians, the special people. Um, the question is, how do you sift through the mass of stories, documents, history to condense into a manageable material? And this is a question from Philip Ott. So Zach, you go first. I think it's planning, essentially. That very much, I've only got 25 seconds. It's planning. You have to be really meticulous about thinking months ahead, um, in the case of, of Everett and Alex, perhaps even years ahead, and thinking what really matters, um, what are the really interesting stories, what are the themes that I like to come out um, in terms of contemporary discussions, uh, and really think through it. And then, obviously, it's just a case of reading. So hours go into the prep. Um, you need to know... The, the topic well you need to read widely um there, there is no other remedy other than a huge amount of time um in terms of knowing your interviewee and knowing your topic um everett well it's funny you say that i must do a lot of planning because i actually do not very much planning at all i've got a rough idea of where i want to go and for every episode I, I, I read a lot take a lot of notes and then i kind of stop and just sort of I don't know. I do a lot of pacing and a lot of walking and thinking. And once I've got everything percolating, I, things start to jump out at me. I, I, you know, chase down more info on this, or I decide I don't actually need this. And just kind of over time, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's like making a sculpture or something, you know, you just kind of chisel away and chisel away until you've got, you know, something that looks like the vision in your head. Um, but I don't, I, I try to not rely too much on planning. I, you know, like I said, to me, this is more of a, like a work of art than a work of scholarship. And so it's, it's about what jumps out at me, what, um, what's fun, what's interesting. Um, and just, you know, I've, I've got to feel it, you know, and uh, I wish I had a better answer for people because they might be hoping to be copying my work methods, but I, I, I'm not sure I could recommend that because it's Maybe. just, you know, I just kind of go where the material takes me and ho hope that it, it, it takes me to the right place. David. Well, I, I, you do some planning for sure. One nice thing about chron chron chronological approaches is, you know, some of the planning is already done for you, but you have to have read well on your on your topic and 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 have some idea of what the story is that you would really like to uh, to tell, and as well as even if you're looking at factual things, there's so many facts and you can't tell them all. You, you have to sift through, and, and, and as, as, as others were saying, you know, even as you're taking a walk or something, think about what you want to emphasize uh, in, in, your, in your podcast uh, in, for any particular you know, episode, uh, and, uh, and, then, and then make sure you, you follow through. Uh, Alex? I've planned out um, 
the three segments for each episode for each of the 96 episodes because and, and it kind of you know it, it's it's fairly straightforward you know that for the final episode covering 1805 you're going to have one on Trafalgar one on Austerlitz and, and and one on something else and so that's 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 been a useful editor it's an editorial decision as much as anything but it's not completely straightforward because there are always competing alternatives and and the scope that we choose to define is really important so uh, you know the the Haitian um, revolution uh, is uh, you know it, making sure that that's incorporated and other global elements are incorporated is is an important part of of my process and really that's where all my reading is at the moment. Well, um, Zach, uh, did I did I give you opportunity to respond? You did. Thank you. Yes. yes. Um, um, well, this is essentially it for this panel. Uh, thank you so much for your wonderful discussion. I'm sorry we didn't had a chance to go through all the audience questions, but I think you gave a, a good uh, sense of what it takes to be a podcaster, to share your passion, but also to bring knowledge, to use that cliche, to the masses, to, to make this information so accessible and to engage people and then to let them participate in, in further uh, search. Well, Alex, um, we I have a, let, me, let me break in briefly. It should not surprise you that podcasters who, unlike college professors, don't have a 50-minute block of time and that's it, who are able and encouraged to talk at great length, it should not at all surprise you that we went really close on our time. <laughs> well, uh, we have about uh, 10 minutes, um, um, maybe 15, just to make sure you uh, stretch your legs, uh, refresh yourself, and uh, come back, and Professor Jeremy Black will be on next. Thank you. Thank you for doing this, Alex. Thank you. <laughs>